Good morning. Um, we're working our way through the fruits of the spirit. Um, we have this week and next week before we move into our Advent um, focus. And today's fruit of the spirit is self-control. Of all the things, it's self-control. Um, so I'm doing a liturgy, but also kind of a listening. No, it's not a liturgy at all. It's a listening focus on self-control. I've been thinking about this through the week and um, thinking how complicated self-control can be or control in general, because there are very few things that we are actually in control of in this life. So it feels really important to actually have self-control as one of the things we can do. I'm not in control of the weather, clearly, but I can measure my emotions and respond to circumstances in ways that don't make things worse. I'm not in charge of the country's economy, but I can choose to be prudent about how much and where I spend my money. I'm not in charge of our medical system, but I can make wise choices about how I live that will help me be healthy. I am not in control of other people's reactions and responses to me, but I can regulate the tone of my voice and the messages I send in order to not harm another. I'm also not in control of how other people drive but I can choose to be patient and kind even when others aren't. I can choose to be my best self every single day. Self-control is not me denying myself. Self-control is me making choices that make space for my most authentic self to thrive. So let's take a minute to consider some questions. I think Josh is going to put these up on the screen. Where do you feel you have the least control of yourself? Could it be your temper? What you consume? How you spend your time? How you spend your money? Consider that these vulnerabilities likely are getting in the way of you being your truest and most authentic self. And Josh, I'm gonna need you to help me with the next slide because I've lost mine. Here we go. Um, What could you do or how could you pivot in order to make space for you to be your authentic self? Is there anything in the way of you being able to do that? An insecurity, a habit, or maybe a narrative you are stuck in? I'm going to leave you guys with those questions this morning, those thoughts, and hopefully it will be filled out more as we go this morning. Um, I, I don't believe that God controls us or this world. 
But I do believe Jesus comes alongside us, that he entered this world like us, flesh and bone and blood, and that he knows the struggle of self-control. So let's invite Jesus. Sorry, guys. Let's invite Jesus to join us in our pursuit of self-control, to hear God's truth about who we are, and to make the choices that are essential to being our most beautiful and authentic selves. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to see that you are at our side, to understand that you long for us to be the best versions of ourselves, and that requires self-control on our part. Give us strength to set aside those things that take up the space that is meant to be used by our most authentic and God-breathed selves. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We're going to just take a moment now to um, take communion together. Uh, this is the one thing that we can actually do together, even whilst we're on Zoom. Um, so that's lovely. And actually, I'm sure many of you know, but it's, it's the one thing that Jesus actually asked us to do each time we meet. Um, and uh, so I think, yeah, it's just a good thing to do. Sometimes, maybe even when we get together around a table and we share a meal together with friends or family, that can also be classed as communion. I know some of um, our most interesting times have been around a table having food with friends and just talking about some things that are on our heart, whether it's wisdom that we need or just sharing stories about our faith or our journey. Um, I think Jesus loves all of that. So let's gather around the table, uh, even though it's virtually together right now. We come to the Lord's Supper together as children of our one God. Jesus makes the guest list, not us. Our family, chosen by God, is gathered from west to east and includes everyone, even the lowest and the least. Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, revealed himself to his disciples in the breaking of bread around a table. May we see the face of God today as we come to the Lord's Supper. On the night that he was handed over, Jesus had a meal with his friends. He took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. After supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and, and giving thanks, gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Let's drink together. Let us pray. God, our creator, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, whose love pursues us our whole life long. Let's say that again. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, whose love pursues us our whole life long. 
Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to us in word and deed, even unto death, even death on a cross. Come, Holy Spirit, and feed us with your love, that we may be filled with power to God, to, to love God with all of our hearts, souls, and minds. Amen. Amen. Thank you for having supper with me this morning. Mm. Pray for Karina. I'm going to make a switch now over to uh, praying for you, Karina. Thank you that you're going to uh, bring us some wisdom this morning and the stuff you've been working on. So, Father, thank you for Karina. Thank you for uh, the time and effort that she has poured into bringing us some wisdom and your words this morning. And um, Karina, I just bless you. And as you read out what you've prepped and you things come to mind, I pray for order in your thoughts and in your words and uh, that you would uh, just enjoy delivering this wisdom to us this morning. No pressure. Amen. <laughs> no pressure. Amen. <laughs> So you guys, what's super fun about this particular house is now kind of like, it's not like all done, but it's ready enough that we can start having like COVID safe groups here when um, we're meeting online. And I invite you guys to do the same. This is so fun. Like it's not the same as all of us together, but I just like my laundry's not done. Not everything is perfect, but we're here and we are together and it is great. And I'm in front of my pantry. So what is that? I don't know. Um, so yeah, I didn't expect the Lectio to be quite like so aggressive this morning. I don't know if you felt that, but I do think, you know, we all have ideas when it comes to self-control. Um, when I think of self-control, I think of a picture that I used to keep by my kitchen sink for years. And it was me as a toddler, like maybe two years old. And I am asleep on the couch, which means I may or may not have refused a nap earlier in the day. And I'm wearing two different socks. And this was back in the late 70s. So this was before two different socks was like cool and a thing. So both the couch nap and the different socks are really evidence that even from a very young age, choice and agency were like really important to me. I do it myself. So um, I don't know. That's just, maybe that's just me. But we're nearing the end of our series, Beauty Fully Alive. And this isn't the last sermon in the series, but it does happen to be the last virtue listed in that Bible verse. Maybe, maybe you remember the virtues through singing that kid's song. You know, the one that goes like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, yeah. faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? And maybe us changing the order has like super affected your control parts and like thrown you for a loop. It's like, we've changed the order of the alphabet. And like now, how are we supposed to know what comes next? Like, am I the only one that does that? Where it's like, you can't remember what letter comes next, so you have to sing the whole alphabet song until you get to the letter and confirm that, yes, L does come before M, so that means I am supposed to bring a salad to the church potluck, right? <laughs> no? Anyway, so today I'm bringing you the penultimate sermon on the fruit of the spirit. So here we go, self-control. So um, I don't know about most of you, but I think we generally feel like pretty good about most of the list of attributes, but self-control is kind of like the cue the sad trombones moment. It's like we're approaching takeoff, love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, right? It's like, it's like the Debbie Downer of the fruit of the spirit. And I think 
most people want to have a good relationship with self-control and a lot of us think we should have more of this. How do I know this? Because there are literally billion dollar industries out there that benefit off of our janky relationship with self-control. And the church is not immune to it either. I mean, like I am a church folks that, that reads church books that get us standing over our scales, our bank balances, our parenting, our devotional, our quiet time failures. And we join Paul in saying, oh, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And I keep doing the things I don't want to do. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so now, congratulations, your self-control is a spiritual issue too. I mean, it's in the Bible after all. There's been a lot of crazy ideas that exist about God and control. I mean, we hear stuff all the time and like, it's honestly never helpful. Well, it's all part of God's plan. Or, you know, if you think about worship songs or greeting cards that say, God is in control. And, and I know the intentions are good, but friends, I don't know if you have read the news like lately or ever, but if God is in control, they really need to up their game. In a lot of ways, our orientation to self-control is often about doing something we don't really want to, more or less, more or less. We want to eat less, sleep more, spend less, eat vegetables more. And I've noticed that when we fail, we blame our lack of control and we increase the restrictions. We try harder on suppression and we feel like we suck at everything because how can a little Halloween candy have so much power over me? How can a two-year-old cause me to lose it? It seems like we spend all this time trying to be Zen and practice love and peace and kindness and then we blow it. And we toss all the virtues out the window trying to get our self-control back. Self-control becomes the try harder, faster, stronger virtue. Forget about peace and kindness. Those are for wimps. So it's no surprise that when that's the underlying narrative and the underlying plan that we start seeing our body as the enemy, our emotions, our thoughts as the enemy, we're locked in a battle that's impossible to win. But what if there was a way to understand self-control that didn't involve being at war with ourselves? What if it's not all the other virtues or self-control? What if control is not where our problems with self-control lie, but rather it is our view and relationship with self and our feelings of safety that determine the way we interact with control. Consider with me that maybe self-control is more like self-regulation or the ability to slow down our responses to see and do what is needed in the moment. What if self-control is an invitation to agency, choice, and participation? That might be good news for all of us. Without further ado, I give you the prodigal son in Luke 15. Uh, you're welcome to read it for yourselves. Right now, we're going to get the Karina Spark Notes version. So a man has two sons, and the younger says to the father, I wish you were dead so that I could have money and be free to do what I want. No big deal. So the father gives his son 
half of all he has and lets the son leave. And he goes far away and he spends the money on whatever he wanted, wine, women, and song. And then the money runs out and he finds himself caring for pigs and longing for their slop. This is, this is the low point in his story. And he realizes that even the worst job back at home was better than this. So he heads home with a good groveling apology at the ready. The father recognizes the son coming home from way off and full of compassion and joy, he sets all propriety and dignity aside and runs full tilt to meet his son. And though the son tries to apologize and place himself among the servants, the father wouldn't hear it. He gives him all of his honor back and he says, you're gone and now you're home. And the only thing I want is to show you love. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the older son heard about this and got right ticked off. How dare you, dad? I have stayed here and done all the work and you have never given me anything. What good are you if you're just gonna throw all the rules and all your money out the window on my useless brother? And the father says, everything I have is yours. And you have me always right here with you. That will always going to celebrate when a lost one comes home and seeing. I'm really curious how they are in control. What are the inner narrative and inner parts that are running the show for each character? And what is the outcome of their relationship with control? And before we go further, I want you to know, I do have a belief that influences my perception here. And that's this, that all behavior is a response to a feeling or emotion. And those feelings are rooted in meaning that we've made surrounded getting our need for safety and security met. So if we get curious, instead of reacting to the behavior, if we get curious about discovering unmet needs rather than behavior fixing, we may notice that behaviors almost always make sense when we understand the inner meaning that we've given them. And if we can heal that inner story and find legitimate ways to meet those needs, illegitimate behaviors take care of themselves. So back to Luke 15, we have the youngest son, the one who tells his dad off, takes his money runs. I don't think he's out of control, but I would argue he's not in connection with his authentic self. It's true that we don't actually know what motivates someone based on their behavior. We can't know for sure, but sometimes rather than thinking, what a selfish jerk, we can wonder, what would protection or pain avoidance look like? What legitimate need is being met through illegitimate actions? I wonder if maybe one of his narratives could be like, freedom over rules is my control. I should be able to do what I want, when I want, and how I want. Boundaries are for suckers. My freedom is what keeps me safe, and my ability to run keeps me from feeling the parts that hurt. Freedom keeps me safe and gives me the control I need. Then we have the older son. We might say he's a prodigal too. Sure, I mean, like his body is there on the farm, but his heart left it a long time ago. Maybe he doesn't like the way his brother or his father responds to the world. Again, we don't know the reasons, but maybe his inner story sounds like rules over freedom are my control. I will cross every T and dot every I, and then I will get what's coming to me. 
by doing everything right, I will not feel pain. I will not ruffle feathers or trouble the waters. I don't just want boundaries. I want a fortress with snipers. Nobody gets in to mess up my world. Rules keep me safe and give me the control I need. And then we have the father. He's this like unflappable, non-anxious presence and like not in a passive aggressive way either. But he is disrupting like a ton of cultural, cultural mores with his behavior. To the same degree that the younger son is a prodigal with his money, the father is lavish and reckless with his love. I wonder if the message from his inner control tower might be self-connection is control. Both of his sons seem to respond with like accusations and disrespect towards the father. They'd like to hang some of their unhappiness on him. And yet he doesn't get all up in their business defending himself or trying to prove them wrong. He gives them permission to walk out their disconnection to its inevitable end. He's got a great sense of boundaries. He knows where he begins, where he ends, where his sons begin, and where they end. And he knows that no matter what, and throwing ridiculous parties that almost look like they're celebrating disrespect and disobedience, he has got unconditional positive regard down pat. He is present, he is connected, and he seems to be really well regulated. His relationship with self and control allows him to respond with unforced, unforced rhythms of grace. And this is why caring for our inner world is so important. If we don't take the time to know ourselves, stories and meaning and emotions that are behind our actions, we will forever be prisoners to behaviorism and a world outside of ourselves that we can't really control. You can't authentically control your authentic self if you don't heal your relationship with yourself. Our problem isn't that we need to work harder to control. We need to see where a stories rooted in shame, fear, and pain are calling the shots and get reconnected to our authentic self so that our control mechanisms will become more helpful. To put it succinctly, you gotta know yourself to control yourself. I mean, the truth is I have parts of me that are like the younger son, parts that react to pain and shame and fear with a, a proclamation of what pain, I do what I want. I also have parts that behave like the older son that are really judgy and scorekeeping instead of feeling what hurts. I have parts of me that would rather have a wall and a rule than a healthy boundary. But I'm also learning that the Jewish proverb that Greg shared last week is true. My authentic self is something that is like an angel going ahead of me announcing, behold, the image of God. And when I believe that's true, that my authentic self is actually a once in a lifetime reflection of God, when I connect to that part of me that is truly me, I have access to the whole song. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the way to self-control. And you'll notice with the father in the story that self-control doesn't always look like following expectations. Sometimes self-control is socially unacceptable. And speaking of socially unacceptable, it's not surprising that Jesus was kind of a champ when it came to self-control. I mean, 
He wants the son of God and everything. There's a great passage in John 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And I think it gives a window into the inner narrative that sustained Jesus and enabled him to have such great self-regulation. John 13, one to six says, now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put in the heart of Judas, son of Simon, Iscariot to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was tied around him. So here's what I noticed. Jesus knew who he was and why he was here, that he had come from God and that he would return to God. Friends, that is some serious, secure, and well-differentiated attachment to himself and to God. That is no flaky thing. That kind of security gives him the ability to know when to flip tables and when to duck into the crowd and disappear, or when to heal on the Sabbath, or when to curse a fig tree. And that's how he was able to say no to every temptation that the accuser threw at him in the desert, that were all about controlling others and abusing power and finding safety for himself apart from love. Jesus knew when to hold him and when to fold him, <laughs> when to walk away and when to run towards the fear, shame, and pain in humanity in order that we would know the self-giving, other-centered, radically forgiving love of God that Jesus was grounded in, that it was there for us too. Self-regulation, as Jesus demonstrates, it looks like self-sacrifice without becoming self-betrayal, self-giving rather than self-serving, self-loving rather than self-loathing. Like I hear that and I think, well, like how dare we lean so hard into love? Isn't that arrogance or pride? Don't, don't we need to get knocked around a little to know our place? The father and the prodigal son doesn't seem to think so. And I'm hoping against hope that like God is at least that good. If we're from love and we return to love and we're never separated from love, maybe love is the way for all of this. Here's what I think we can see in Jesus. That the fruit of the spirit isn't just a lofty list of aspirations. Sometimes I, I think that phrase, fruit of the spirit, is so churchy and well-worn that it's kind of lost its meaning. Fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit. I mean, like it kind of just becomes just blah, sounds, right? So here's, here's another way of thinking of it. This is actually a resume for God's character and nature that is already imprinted on our authentic self. It's who we truly are because it's what God is truly like. Remember, behold, the image of God. What is God like? They are love and love looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you have the same spirit in you. So when every week we've come here for these, this series and said, 
these virtues aren't things you can buy or manufacture outside of yourself. We're not then saying that you just got to try and conjure up something you are lacking. I mean, life, being human, growing up and growing into the truth of who you are is, is more like a recovery effort or a renovation. We need help to do it. We need one another to get there. We need communities of nurturance and repair to hold space for our growth and development. We are not here to try harder or even to try smarter. We're here to discover the gift of our God-given selves and through that to grow in self-regulation. Sometimes when I get discouraged like by the amount of work I think I need to do to integrate my inner landscape, I'm reminded of the parable in Matthew 13 that Jesus tells. And it's about the one who finds the treasure, sells everything, and buys the whole field that contains the treasure. Friends, Jesus is the landowner, and we are the field, and the treasure is already in us. And Jesus doesn't just, just want the treasure. He wants the whole dang field. And our jacked up beliefs and behaviors don't scare him or diminish the value of the treasure. The second thing these stories show us is, is that God isn't in control of us. God is not a micromanager. God gave us the gift of being in control of us the way that God is in control of them. Let me share this revelation a friend had about God in control. God is not controlling. That is not what God's control is like. However, God is always in total control of God's self. There you go. We can sing the songs about God being in control once again. It's good news. <laughs> Just like the prodigal father and Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I wonder if sometimes part of the reason we've drifted towards types of control or wishing that God was a micromanager in the sky or would baptize our micromanaging beliefs and theologies is because having self-control really does increase our agency, our participation, and our responsibility. Literally, our ability to respond to the needs and problems of the world. That is wonderful and terrible news, isn't it? We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. My hope is this picture of self-control kind of orients us to be curious. What is our unique gift of responding to the world in partnership with God going to be? There really is so much mystery around being made in God's image and what, that's mean, what that means for us. Another thing I need to remember, we get to grow into ourselves just like Jesus did. These are things I'm convinced Jesus learned. I know how I learned. I fail and I try again. I wonder if Jesus isn't like that too. Pharisee. Okay, um, <laughs> moving on, moving on. <laughs> My prayer for us is that we would remember that love is the way. Love is the means and love is the end. Anything else, and we will twist these gifts into tools for manipulation, control, and harm. And our work is not to get better at controlling. Our work is to really lean into love and the invitation to participate, 
with the unforced rhythms of grace. And that unforced rhythm gently uncovers the behaviors and emotions and meanings behind them that are rooted in pain and shame and fear. And then by dissolving those, we discover the life and the party that God made us for. As people and as a community, I hope we make room for our process, that we would have compassion for our inner stories and good boundaries that create safety and security for us to be brave and become who we were made to be together. So to close, I thought we could do a little imaginative prayer together. And as always, I mean, I can't preach sermon on self-control and then tell you you have to do this. You don't, but it's an invitation. I respect your agency. But a few options here. Maybe you have um, a similar mental picture of yourself as a small child touting your independence that makes you smile like my toddler self with the mismatched socks. Does. I invite you, just close your eyes and picture that. Or maybe if that isn't a memory you want to connect to, maybe you want to imagine the field with buried treasure as your inner landscape. Jesus has just sold everything to buy it. And he doesn't just want the treasure, but the whole field. Maybe you want to picture that. Or maybe you want to picture yourself at a party thrown just to celebrate who you are and that you found home again. So for any of those pictures, I invite you to take a deep breath and invite God's perspective into the picture. Now what do you see? What do you notice? What is God especially fond of that God wants you to know? I invite you to take another deep breath and ask God if there is a place in your body that is open to receive this message of love. If you want, I invite you to place your hands there if it feels right and just notice what it feels like when God's love becomes embodied. Does your breathing change? Do certain parts relax or tense up? Is there emotional release? Whatever happens, don't judge it, just notice it. Can you hear the spirit saying how very beautifully human of you If you can, give what you notice God is noticing, the same unconditional positive regard that God always does. And then let's close by blessing our bodies with this declaration or, or affirmation. And maybe you're like me and affirmations actually don't really work for me. I know they're great for some people, but I'm here with maybe a little twist to help those of us that feel like Declarations, I'm not there yet, it's not real. So if declarations are your thing, cool, stick with it. If not, I invite you to try an affirmation instead of an affirmation. And that's where you just put what if before the affirmation, because it'll help activate your curiosity and keep you open to notice possible ways this might be true. So maybe some of you can say, behold, I am the image of God that responds to the needs that are present in me and my world with love. Maybe you need to say, behold, what if I am the image of God?
that responds to the needs that are present in me and my world with love. Let's try that once more. Behold, what if I am the image of God that responds to the needs that are present in me and my world with love? Behold. Amen. Thank you.